Hey, thank you so much for singing with us this morning. Uh, that's exactly what we were designed to do. And such a powerful song and, and a glimpse of how great it's going to be. Uh, and I look forward to singing with all of you for all of eternity. And what a wonderful thing that will be. Uh, this morning is our second sermon in a series of sermons on worship. And in just a moment, I want to invite you to read with me our passage for today. But before we do that, I, I just want to make a very brief plea to you. Uh, and that is that if you typically bring uh, your infant or toddler uh, into the worship service, uh, I just want to ask you if you would consider uh, making use of our preschool ministry. Uh, our team does such a phenomenal job of keeping those kids safe and happy and loving them well. And our preschool ministry, it's just right through those doors or those doors and, and right behind the stage here. Uh, and we would love to serve you and have that opportunity uh, by, by you giving your kids to us for just this hour so that you can focus on worship. And if for some reason you are uncomfortable or not wanting to do that, uh, I also just want to mention that we do have our overflow room right across the hall here, as well as TVs uh, throughout different lobby areas. And, and moms, if you want to go through here, there's a restroom as well uh, with a nursing room that's attached to it uh, with a TV where you can watch the service as well. And so thank you for considering that. Our passage this morning is John 4, 23 through 24. Uh, you can follow along on the screens. You can follow along in your copy of God's word. And this is on your bulletin as well. It says this. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray together. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us, for revealing your character through the nature and the world around us, but, but also revealing yourself to us through your word. And so I thank you for the ministry that your word has on us today. And I thank you for Pastor Kevin, who faithfully preaches it day in and day out. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with Pastor Kevin now uh, and that you would be with us as well, that we might have ears to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you for joining us in worship today. And if you are in our overflow room, I'd like to welcome you as well. Or if you are watching us online or listening on our podcast, let me say welcome to you. Also, so years ago, I read a story about a young boy who was riding in the back seat of his parents' car as they left church and drove home that day. And he sat quietly and listened as mom and dad expressed their overall dissatisfaction with everything about the worship service that morning. It seems that they did not like the selection of songs, and there was one particular vocalist who was off-key, and the lyrics didn't seem to be up at exactly the right time, and the drums were too loud, and the keys were too soft, and the lighting was too low, and the temperature was too cold, and then they got to the sermon. And it was a boring sermon, and there was a lack of content, and they were unhappy with the pastor's preparation for that morning. 
Finally, they finished their gripe session, and the boy just sat quietly in the back seat, taking in everything that he had heard from his parents. But then he remembered the offering that he had placed in the plate as it came by during the worship service. So finally, he broke the silence, and he, and he said, Mom, Dad, I hear everything that you guys have said, but you know, you have to admit, I think all in all, it was a pretty good show for a nickel. So this morning, we are continuing our series uh, on worship uh, that we've entitled Worship Matters. And if you were here with us last week, uh, you know that I told you I stole this title from an individual named Bob Coughlin, uh, who is a worship pastor and who has written a book by this same title. Uh, And this title has somewhat of a double meaning. Uh, We are talking in this series about matters related to worship. What is personal worship and corporate worship? And what are the elements that are important in worship? And what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? But there is another meaning to this title. Worship matters in our lives. Who or what you worship will determine the quality and the direction of your life. Uh, If you are a follower of Christ especially, your worship of God makes a huge difference in your life. Your soul needs to worship the Lord. And so in this series, we are talking about how we can become better worshipers. And if you have your message map with you, you can take that out. I'd like to review the definition of Christian worship that I gave last week. Here it is, you can write this in. Christian worship is the outward expression of an inner delight in the Lord. So true Christian worship is valuing and delighting in God. It is the outward expression of this inner treasuring of God. Through our words, through our actions, through our money, through how we spend our time, we proclaim and express our devotion to God. And here's what this definition means. Worship is more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of who God is. In fact, if you want to, on your message map, you can circle or underline that word delight. You see, there are a lot of times in our lives that we recognize or we acknowledge the worth of something or someone, but we do so without delighting in that fact. If you're a fan of college football, you get this. There have been seasons that you have intellectually acknowledged the talent of another team, but you do so through with gritted teeth as you express what you intellectually know to be true, but, but you certainly do not delight in that truth. The same is true in our worship of God. Worship of God is for, far more than just an acknowledgement of who God is. In fact, in his letter to Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, 
James, the brother of Jesus, addressed this very fact. In James 2.19, he wrote this. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, demons very much acknowledge theological truths about God. A demon would say, for example, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. A demon would say that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. A demon would say with conviction that eternal life can only be found through Jesus Christ. Yet that same demon would never delight in any of those intellectual acknowledgments. And for us, this means that worship is far more than just having a correct theological understanding of God. Let me say that again. Worship is more than just singing, saying, or agreeing with truths that are theologically right about God. However, having that right theological understanding is a vital part of worship, and that is what we are covering today. Um, So if you were here last week, you know that we looked at an account of Jesus meeting with a woman in Samaria who was a Samaritan woman, and we talked about how unusual it was for someone who was Jewish to travel through Samaria to speak with someone who was a Samaritan. And if you missed last week, let me encourage you to go back and watch that video or listen to that podcast as we pulled out several truths from that passage about who we are and how God relates to us. And we got to the end of that passage and we discovered these two important principles when it comes to our worship. These principles that Jesus gave in his conversation with the Samaritan woman. You heard these two principles in the text that Stephen read earlier. Uh, You can see this on your message map. Here is the verse. Let's go through it again. Uh, Jesus said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Then Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so last week we looked at the first principle that Jesus gave, that genuine worship is guided by the Spirit. And last week we talked about that sometimes this has been mistaken to mean that we worship in our spirits or with emotion or with our heart engaged in worship. And while that may be necessary, that is not what Jesus was referring to here. This was specifically a reference to the Holy Spirit, that true worshipers worship as they are guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us in our worship of God, which means someone who is not a follower of Christ cannot truly worship God because they do not have the Holy Spirit residing in them. True worship is, first of all, guided by the Spirit and not our flesh. But here's the second principle in what we are going to examine today. You can write this in. Genuine worship is grounded in truth. 
True worship, according to Jesus, must be informed by the revelation of God. We cannot worship God if our beliefs about God are untrue. That worship at best is just a bunch of spiritual aerobics, and at worst, it is worshiping something that's not God. Bob Coughlin, uh, in his book that I referenced earlier, gives an illustration that really helps frame why it is so important that our worship is grounded in truth. If you came to me and you said to me, hey, I really admire your oldest son. I think a lot of him. I'm very impressed by him. I would respond and say, well, thank you very much. I'm very honored by that. Thank you for saying that. And then if you went on to say, you know what really impresses me is how well he plays the piano. And I love it when he leads worship. I mean, he is such a great vocalist. And, and, and I am just overwhelmed when I am in worship and he is leading worship. I, I would stop you and say, well, wait a second. I don't know who you're talking about, but it's not my oldest son. He does not play the piano and he does not lead in worship. What you're saying about him is untrue. And if you went on to say, no, 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 it's him. And I just love the way that he leads in worship and, and the musical talent that God has given to him. No matter how much you praise my son, I would not be honored. He would not be honored because what you were saying about him would be untrue. Your praise of him would be false praise. The same is true in our worship of God. If we worship and praise God, but our worship is not based on truth, then it does not honor God. No matter how expressive we are in worship, no matter how much we go on and on, no matter how emotional we are, no matter how passionate we are, if our worship is not grounded in truth, then it does not honor God. Let me give you just a couple of, of examples of how this can practically play out um, in worship. There is a song that we sing from time to time in worship here at Northway uh, entitled Wonderful Name. I love this particular song. In fact, if I'm going to make a personal playlist of songs for me to listen to, I will include this particular song. Uh, if you're not familiar with the song, let me just give you the chorus. It is, it is a wonderful chorus uh, that goes like this. What a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Feels really awkward reading that rather than singing, but I do not want to ruin your worship experience this morning by singing those words to you. Those are great lyrics. They are full of truth. I love that particular song. Except when you get to the second verse of the song, there are the following two lines. You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. 
ah, the reason I do not like those particular lines is because they feed the very wrong, false idea that some Christians have that God created man because he was lonely. That God created Adam and Eve because he was somewhere out there in the universe bored and thought, I need something to entertain me. I know, I'll create a universe and a world and on that planet I'll put animals, birds and fish and people. I'll put man and woman and that will entertain me. Finally, I will not be bored anymore. That God was like someone who said, I need something in life. I'm going to go and buy a puppy. Like we are God's puppies. That is far from true. Scripture is very clear that God has existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship. And God has never been, nor will he ever be, lonely. That's not why God created man. And yet there is that belief that's out there. Now in their defense, the writers of this particular song based that line on the prayer of Jesus in John 17 when Jesus prayed, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And when I know that, when I read what their defense is, I think, okay, perhaps I can live with that line knowing the background that they gave for it. However, most people do not come to worship and research the lyrics that were written for a worship song before they sing that song. And there is that false notion that's out there. So therefore, when we sing this song, Wonderful Name, we pull that line. We just skip over verse 2 because we do not want anyone to worship based on a falsehood. Here's another song that we do not sing here at Northway, but is popular in some circles. Uh, This particular song, I do not know who the author is, but it's been made popular by the great, legendary Michael W. Smith. Now, if you're over about 40 years old, and you grew up in church, you know exactly who I'm talking about. You had the cassette tape in your car, right? (laughs) You sang Rocket Town with the reverb. You knew all the lyrics to Friends are Friends Forever. I love Michael W. Smith. I have tremendous respect for Michael W. Smith, but not this particular song. It has some real theological issues. Here is the song. It's called Above All. Here's the chorus. Crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. You took the fall and you thought of me above everything else. I think one of the reasons this is a popular worship song is we like to be the center of worship. We want to put ourselves on the throne. And so we imagine this scenario 
where God sent Jesus to the world and then Jesus willingly went to the cross and as he hung on the cross, he looked down through the history and he looked 2,000 years into the future and he said as he hung on the cross, all this pain, all this torture, taking on the wrath of God, all of this is for Kevin. Above all. We like the thought of that. But it's not true. That might be my natural desire to be the center of worship. But I promise you, Jesus did not think of me above all. If our worship is not centered on God above all, on God's greatness above all, then it is not grounded in truth. And just like my hypothetical scenario of you describing my son and praising my oldest son in the wrong way, God is not honored when our worship is not based upon who he actually is. So how do we keep ourselves grounded in truth as we worship? Uh, You'll see these three things, these three very simple principles on your message map. Uh, Let's quickly go through these. Number one, you can write this in. How do we worship in truth? Well, we do what the Bible clearly commands. If the Bible says this is what you should do in worship, then that is what we should do in worship. There are a number of examples we could give. This one is from the book of Ephesians. When Paul wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, he gave very clear instructions on our worship. Here's what he wrote in chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins this section by uh, instructing those followers of Christ in Ephesus to not get drunk on wine, which he says leads to debauchery. Another translation for debauchery there could be wasteful living. Paul says, don't waste your lives being filled with wine, being drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And one of the ways that you do this is through speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and psalms from the Spirit. Uh, Speaking there could just as easily be translated as seeing. It represents any form of communication. So Paul here says that as followers of Christ, one of the things that we are to do is to sing Psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Psalms represent the psalms that you have in your Old Testament. That was the Jewish songbook. And so these early Christian congregations would often sing the psalms that we have in our Bibles. Hymns refers to songs that were written that were common throughout the Christian congregations. Songs that had been written down and these various congregations would sing these songs. Songs from the Spirit refer to more spontaneous songs. A leader would begin a chorus and 
have the church gather there, repeat after him. The specific types of music that Paul listed here is not what is really important. What is important is the command that we are to worship, number one, through song. That we are to worship through singing. Now, can we have a worship service with no singing at all? Maybe, but I don't think so. I don't want to say that with an extreme rigidness, but I cannot imagine gathering for worship and not singing at all. Why? Because the Bible clearly commands that we are to sing and worship. The second thing to note here is that we are commanded to sing not just to the Lord, but to one another. Paul says, sing psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit to one another, which means that when you gather here for worship, when I come for worship, that we are more than just spectators, that we are singing not only to the Lord, but we are singing to encourage those who have gathered to worship alongside us. This is one of the reasons that we say that Sunday morning worship is so important. It is so important for the health of our church. Here's what I mean. If on a Sunday morning, if the musicians and the vocalist and the tech team and I or whoever is preaching that morning, if we all come and we do exactly what we did this morning, but those chairs are empty, it's not real worship. It's just not the same. And I'm not telling you that based on my opinion or just a hypothesis. I am telling you that based on fact, a fact from history called COVID. When we shut down for 16 weeks, that's exactly what we did. We gathered here on Sundays and we preached and we led worship to cameras. And it just wasn't the same. It was not the church gathered singing to one another. This is a clear command regarding worship. The Bible also gives a clear command that the preaching of God's word should be a part of worship. Could we have a worship service without God's word being preached? I guess, maybe, but probably not. Why? Because the Bible clearly commands that. The Bible says we should pray in worship. Could we have a worship service where we do not pray at all? I don't think so. Why? Because the Bible clearly commands this. Whatever the Bible says that we should do in worship, that we should do. Secondly, and you can write this in, to worship in truth, do not do what the Bible clearly forbids. So we do what the Bible commands, and we do not do what the Bible clearly forbids. It makes sense, right? So what's an example of something the Bible clearly forbids? In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he referenced a number of problems in their worship services. And one was the way that they took the Lord's Supper, or what we sometimes call Holy Communion. The church in Corinth would meet in the homes of the members of the church, and for very practical reasons, they would meet in the homes of the more wealthy members. Those homes were larger, they could accommodate more people, and so it made sense they would meet in these homes. However, apparently, 
these wealthy church members were inviting their friends to come over and eat a full meal before the church would meet for worship. And they would invite their wealthy friends to come over and have this dinner. And then as part of the dinner, they would then celebrate the Lord's Supper together while the rest of the members of the church waited outside. They would exclude a portion of the church while they celebrated with their little group the Lord's Supper. So Paul, hearing about this, wrote to the church and he condemned them for this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. So here's the principle that we see about worship in this passage. Worship should never be exclusive. When the church gathers, it's not just for a portion of the church. No member should ever be excluded from church gatherings. This does not mean that we cannot have age-targeted worship services. We do this. We have college worship. They meet every other Friday night. We have student worship services. They meet on Wednesday nights. Uh, those are age-targeted worship services, but we do not exclude anyone who fits into that particular age group. So all college students are invited. All middle school and high school students are invited. The principle we see here is that we are to be inclusive in worship. The Bible also says that we should not come to God with a half-hearted nature or a selfish agenda. We read about this in the very first worship service in the Bible. When Cain and Abel offered their worship to God, Abel did so by bringing the best of his livestock. Cain brought the leftovers. God condemned this. Uh, so worship should not be half-hearted. Uh, the Bible says, do not worship if you have strife with a brother or sister in Christ. Go be reconciled to your brother or sister first, then come and offer your worship. Do not worship other gods. Do not teach and preach things that are untrue about God. Whatever the Bible clearly forbids should not be part of worship. So we do what the Bible commands. We do not do what the Bible forbids. And then finally, number three, we use biblical wisdom for everything else. There are so many things that we do and do not do in worship that are not expressly commanded or forbidden, but biblical wisdom guides us in what we are supposed to do. So years ago, I saw this video that made its way around the cyber world about this pastor who entered the church worship service at his particular church on a zip line. It was a large church. It was packed full. It had a large balcony. And after they finished the worship set and it was his time to preach, instead of walking up steps, he entered from the balcony over the heads of the people that were gathered there on a zip line onto the stage as the theme music from Mission Impossible played. 
If you've seen this video, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Now, I do not see anywhere in the Bible where it says specifically that a pastor should not enter the worship service on a zip line, that a pastor should not enter as the theme music for Mission Impossible is playing. However, wisdom tells us that's probably not good. Uh, that's putting someone at the center of attention and taking the focus off of God. Whatever the Bible tells us to do, that we should do. What it forbids, we should not do. And then we use biblical wisdom to guide us on everything else. Last week, Jesus went through Samaria. We saw that in the passage. He met there with a Samaritan woman at a well. She had come to draw water, and Jesus asked her for a drink of water. And then in that conversation, Jesus offered to her living water. And Jesus said, this, this is a type of water that whoever drinks this water will never thirst again. Let me ask you this morning, are you thirsty are you thirsty for that kind of water? The kind of water that will quench the thirst you have for peace? Are you thirsty this morning uh, for the type of life where you can lay your head on your pillow at night and rest easy? Are you thirsty for unconditional love? Are you thirsty for acceptance, for forgiveness? Are you thirsty this morning for freedom? Freedom from yourself? Freedom from the opinions of others? Freedom to worship God fully? Are you thirsty for those things this morning? If you are, you have to be careful. If you feel like you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst, you have to be careful not to give in to mirages that appear in the desert. They promise to quench our thirst, but then we get there and we get that thing, we get that relationship, we are successful in whatever it is that we are after. It just doesn't do it. It doesn't quench the thirst. It is only the living water of Jesus Christ that will quench that thirst in a way where you will never thirst again. So let me ask you this morning, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Jesus invites you to come and to drink this morning.